Hello and welcome to the Good Mood Podcast. My name is Dr. Talia Marcajani. I'm a naturopathic doctor and I've dedicated my practice to learning everything there is to know about optimizing mental and emotional health. In this podcast, we answer the question, what does it take to live a life of truth, beauty, freedom, vitality, purpose, and joy? In a mix of solo episodes and interviews, I'll be talking about all the things that fascinate me, nutrition, nature, the latest science, psychology and psychotherapy, mindfulness and meditation, supplementation, and more. I'm so excited to have you here. Welcome to episode 17 of the Good Mood Podcast. In today's episode, I talk to Dr. Emily Med Bennett. She's a classmate and fellow naturopathic doctor who focuses her practice on community medicine and advocacy. She has a special interest in addressing oppressive power structures we might encounter in our society and in our clinics, both the conventional medical clinic, but also the ways we might inadvertently shame patients within the context of an alternative healthcare model. Emily and I talk about her work with empowering patients through body awareness and having deeper conversations around conventional, potentially shame-inducing treatment goals like weight loss or dietary changes. We talk about how shame might be addressed head-on in a healthcare setting and how we can work towards dismantling oppressive power structures embracing a more inclusive and supportive healthcare model. Health is subjective, and as naturopathic doctors who focus on individualized medicine, I believe that the work that Emily is doing is important. How we approach the therapeutic encounter can have major impact on our patients' relationships to their bodies and their health experiences. I hope you enjoy this episode. All right, welcome Dr. Emily Bennett. Uh, So we're talking about shame in healthcare and yeah. it's a topic that um, I think has always been near and dear to your heart, but that you, I've seen you evolve into, especially more recently, as like really um, standing behind it as like the main um, sort of focus in your practice. And maybe you could say a bit more about that and how you, how you found this path. Yeah. Um, I've been really lucky since I started practicing to have been working in environments that cater to specific communities that are looking for not just alternative care, but alternative, alternative care, like alternative care and alternative environments. So um, when I first started practicing, a lot of my patients were part of the queer community. A lot of my patients worked in frontline work, social workers, people who were doing the hard work of caring for others without, you know, a lot of compensation or care for them. And um, it also just ties into communities I've been a part of for a long time before I started practicing naturopathic medicine. Um, but the themes, you know, the theme kind of coalesced people, you know, wanting to see me because they know that, um, I had, I had space for different identities, space for unusual, um, lifestyles that maybe are not that common that other practitioners responding to them with some judgment when they present their work as a sex worker or, you know things that are maybe not mainstream. And through the privilege of like working with folks with different experiences, I was educated myself in in understanding the impact that shame plays on people's access to healthcare and the experience they have in healthcare environments. Um, You know, I would say that the first like like most clear example of this that consistently comes up for people all over the place is around body size. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of folks in bigger bodies, fat folks, you know, they they are very used to showing up in a healthcare environment and having an interaction with any kind of provider, whether they're a medical doctor, naturopathic doctor, nutritionist, chiropractor, and there being a conversation about their weight. Mm-hmm. 
as if it were the first time they're talking as if it as if it was the first time they're talking about it like oh you know if you lost weight then you wouldn't have this problem anymore um and i was just i i had i got to have a lot of honest conversations with people who were like i can't i can't show up with my problems and have that be the only thing people say to me again i don't want this to be this is not this is my body and like we need to talk about other things besides losing weight it's not that i haven't tried but this this is where I've, this is where I've landed. What else do you have for me? It's traumatizing me again and again to show up places and have someone say, comment on what my body looks like and assume that that's the reason I'm dealing with these health issues when A, that's not always the case and B, it's definitely not helpful or supportive or meeting someone where there's at to just be meeting someone where they're at to just give that recommendation. So I think that, yeah, the, the kind of coming to this idea of like shame in healthcare is, um, you know, coming from all those experiences of really wanting to was seeing the most of and care deeply about and understanding the problems that lots of folks were facing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge one, right? Because it's like this, mm-hmm. idea of, you know, the weight is the underlying cause of everything that someone's dealing with and then how that manifests, which first of all is not even true at all. Like, and we know from a scientific perspective, but then also just preventing somebody from even seeking care at all, knowing that that's going to be the recommendation and they're not going to be taken seriously. They're not going to be listened to. Um, they're going yeah. to be judged. And it, and there's this underlying thing, which I think is, is difficult in our profession too, of so working with lifestyle medicine, just in general, what I've been noticing is like looking for, um, you know, these, these gaps in, in lifestyle foundations. And then, and then if I'm not careful seeing myself come at it from a place of like, what is this person um, quote unquote doing wrong? You know what I mean? Like we're looking for like, okay, so what can we improve when it comes to food or movement or self, even self-care? Like all of these things have like a slight nuance on like, you know, you know, this is how someone can improve. And so a lot of the recommendations, like we're not careful, have this taint of like, I have the answer and this is how, you know, this is what you're missing or this is what you can yeah. add or, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah. Yeah. I think like, yeah, there's an aspect of, um, recognizing that. And if I'm a a so-called trauma informed practitioner where a person who, you know, one of the aspects of being a trauma informed practitioner is to truly be willing to meet people where they're at again and again, to not draw draw lines in the sand and say, look, this is not going to improve unless you take gluten out of your diet or whatever. Um, when perhaps that is an inappropriate recommendation for that person and you haven't made the effort to understand that that is the case and then find, find another route that meets them where they're at and doesn't, and doesn't, you know, prevent them from coming back or seeking care from someone else again, because they're, they fear that again, they'll have this line that they are not allowed to, that they, they must get over in in order to like improve and it's not possible for them to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so much of. There, there is the, there's so much to say about it. You know, it's a really, it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing in the world of wellness where some of the time we stumble upon things that do seem like easy answers for certain, for people who are able to take those steps. Um, but like the true work of being a practitioner where doctor is teacher versus doctor has the answers doctor is the guide you know provides shines a light on paths that are possible to take you to where you want to be um it's like you have 
have to, you have to, I feel like it's a, you have to recap it again and again to, to remind, to remind, to be in that interaction with each individual patient and say, let's have an honest conversation about what's going to work for you, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, and find something that will work. I think like, you know, something for folks in our line of work that also is really worthwhile discussing is the, is the lack of sensitivity around, uh, Uh, disordered eating and eating disorders is always a nutritional component. And really, you know, each individual person needs to be screened for patterns or history of disordered eating or an eating disorder um, in order to feel confident that you're making a recommendation that isn't going to cause harm for them in the long run. It's not, we've all had the experience of, you know, recommending something to someone and then they've fallen off. You know, we see them two to three times and we don't see them again. And maybe you never, you never, got to have that conversation where you said, you know, like the idea is we learn something from, you know, perhaps you have taken them through the process of removing something from their diet and you want to learn something from that and figure out how to adapt to a lifestyle where whatever, it's not, you're not, you're not running into the problem where that food causes the symptom they don't want. Mm -hmm. Um, But they fall off and you don't get to go through that. And perhaps it leads to them doing harm to themselves because they believe that they, they mustn't eat this thing or else something bad will happen. And Mm -hmm. That that is connected to shame in a variety of ways. Also, I don't know. It's really like it's an interesting. I think that it plays if you it plays into it gives us the opportunity to really think of those principles of naturopathic medicine again and check out the ways that we are not maybe like honoring them um, in each of our interactions with our patients. Yeah, just it reminds me of like how insidious shame is and like in healthcare yeah. in general and how that percolates into our, into what we do as well. Like we're not definitely yeah. not free of it. Right. Like no, personally. Yeah. You know, and I'm just thinking of how many patients have come in um, patients that maybe I have worked with that um, we didn't have a conversation that was explicit enough, or we didn't get to that, to that core of shame properly enough, perhaps, or mm. patients that have come from other practitioners where that was the message. It was like, if I eat gluten, I'm essentially a bad person. Or if I eat this way, or if I haven't lost weight or, or weight loss equals health, this, yeah. this insidious message that I see time and time again, when even the word uh, diet, um, I have to be careful of because when we hear that word, we think of weight loss essentially, mm-hmm. or like caloric restrict, whatever restriction. Mm-hmm. Um, when maybe what we're talking about is like the way that one eats, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we don't actually flush that out and make explicit what we mean by the word diet, um, or what we mean by taking out gluten as an experiment. Okay, here's one pathway. We could take it out for a couple weeks, see mm-hmm. what happens. We're going to tr- reintroduce it, see how your body responds. It's mm-hmm. not about whether this is like an evil food that, mm-hmm. um, you know, everyone who consumes is going to just be condemned to bad health, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, but there are these little, um, and, you know, we might think, oh, you know, on the third visit, we'll address this or we'll get into all of this. But like you said, um, people can be falling off earlier than that and and stuck yeah. with that like sitting with that message of, you know, oh, I was supposed to do this detox and I couldn't do it. Um, yeah. Or it wasn't appropriate for me to do it. Um, or I'm still doing it thinking that this is the way that um, a healthcare practitioner that this I trust is going to be. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I have a thing popping up. <laughs> um, yeah. I think too, you know, one of the things that was um, – so in, in the kind of like big, com- bigger conversation I've been having with, I've been recently having all these conversations, as you know, with different healthcare practitioners around shame 
And, um, you know, one of the, one of the people I spoke to is a psychotherapist local to Hamilton who reminded us of the work Brené Brown's done. Obviously she's like very well known for talking about shame. And one of the distinctions that was so helpful to um, revisit, which she discusses in one of her Ted talks that you can easily find online is that distinguishing between shame and guilt. Guilt is something I did. Shame is something I am, you know, like when you think of how harmful it must be to be living a life where you are internalizing, you know, when you, where you have internalized the things that a healthcare practitioner says to you with the interest of your health and taking care of you. Um, and it leads to, it leads to shame. It leads to withdrawing. It leads to feeling unsupported and that one is bad is bad, not has done something bad. It's really like, it's when you think about it, it's devastating to think that that you might be having that impact on people sometimes without knowing it, you know, just by not carefully considering sort of myriad things that make up a person and their experience. Totally. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, I was thinking about that distinction before this talk about, um, yeah, like guilt being, you know, I've, I've done something wrong or something I wish I hadn't. Um, like my dog this weekend who ate a dead porcupine and we had to like poke oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He was like a, like kind of ashamed of like his decision, which was not a good one. Um, but then, but then shame, which is that I can't even, you know, every time I interact with a healthcare practitioner, I'm going to get the same um, recommendation, the same piece of advice because of who I am, which is wrong mm-hmm. and which is mm-hmm. somehow contributing to my, whatever symptom I come in with. This is, this is what yeah. you're saying. Um, yeah. You know, I have a headache, diabetes, whatever it is. And it's, mm-hmm. it's like, there's always going to be that recommendation of weight loss. Um, but people have had that experience and, um, and yeah, and, and, and sometimes it can be extremely subtle and it can come in the, in the shape of compassion. Like we're, we're here to yeah, help and we're here to listen and take care. Exactly take care of you but this underlying subtext which we might not be intentional about as you said it might Mm -hmm. just be the way that things are framed that we're and we're you know unaware of that person's experience or the journey that they've taken until they've arrived at our office um yeah what are you finding people have been saying about the ways that we can have those conversations um or or what have you found is helpful or what have your patients told you has worked for them Hmm. Well, you know, I'm, I mean, you, you know, I'm sure a lot of people, people who are in bigger bodies or identify as fat who show up in your office and they will always mention weight loss too, because they know that it's going to come up. And so they'll say, they'll say, I'm here because, you know, my PMS is out of control. It's ruining my life. I need to work on it. Also, I get migraines and of course, weight loss. And always in my free alignment appointments, 15 minute appointments before we kind of like get going, working together. I always straight up and like, well, what do you mean weight loss? Like, what do you, I, I'm constantly, I mean, you know, this is only one aspect of this, of this shame thing. But with respect to that, I'm always just like, let's talk a little bit about what you mean when you say weight loss. Mm-hmm. You know, um, these are my beliefs. You know, my, I really believe that they're, is it is possible to have health at every and how would you feel if we go through this whole process together and like you you land in a place that for you feels like optimal health for where you're at in your in your life right now and your body shape and size doesn't change at all and in fact with everything that we look at it says to us 
you're in great health. You're in great health. You feel great. You have a wonderful sense of well-being, and yet you haven't lost any weight, and your body doesn't look any different. How would you feel about that? Because I am not somebody who is. I'm not. I'm not going to push weight loss. I'm not the person to come. If weight loss is your goal, then you know I would love to have a conversation with you about how we can like make sure that you feel great about the way you're eating. You feel that when you eat, you're eating what you want. That it's filling you up in the right ways. That you're aware of why you're choosing to eat, what you're choosing to eat, and you know that there is this intuitive aspect to it. Same goes with movement. Same goes with all the things that like my main, the main thing that like the long-term outcome I want for everybody I work with, I want that to be deeper connection with your body, full embodiment, you know, to know, to just feel like at home with oneself and at home with your place in the world. And even more importantly, like resilient and ready to go and do the hard work of existing in the world to dismantle oppression and engage with like, the, the work that we need to do in order to make it a fair place for everybody. So, you know, that's how I see it come up all the time is exactly like that. Somebody who really actually doesn't give a thing, they bring it up because they know that like, it's going to come up. So they just want to let me know, they know they should lose weight. And then it's like, that's a wonderful opportunity for me to say, let's, let's get into that a bit and just explore why you're saying that right now. Mm. I don't know if that answers your question. Totally. Yeah, definitely. It's really unpacking that, you know, as opposed to just taking it for granted, like, okay, this is this person's goal. Really yeah. understanding where did that goal come from? Is that yeah. something that's actually important? And, you know, if you, if you achieve every single other, you know, health outcome, but th- th- a lot of people don't even know that that is possible, right? It's like this, this yeah. sense of embodiment. Um, I mean, I've, I definitely have had conversations with patients whose goal was weight loss and and, you know, we had a conversation around, like, it wasn't as, as nuanced as, as the conversation you're talking about. But um, I remember as an intern, we would say things like, you know, so how, you know, are you, would you feel, you know, when you've achieved this goal? Or, you know, what, what, what do you think would be possible for you? You know, like, what is the meaning behind this health outcome that you're looking for, if it's weight loss or whatever it is? And, and sometimes there'd be this disconnect of like, well, what do you mean? Like, I'll look good in pictures. And, you know, and I mean, and then it's worse when it comes from a, like other healthcare practitioners saying that, well, this is the road to fixing your PMS. Um, yeah, I mean, just really interesting in terms of, um, you know, how, how we can really think of like, oh, could I, you know, be healthy without this weight loss that everyone is telling me that is absolutely necessary in terms of, you know? Yeah. There's this wonderful, one of the, one of my, the, the people I've learned the most from and who I am indebted to again and again is Sonia Renee Taylor. She has um, a book called The Body is Not an Apology and an organization by the same name. And in The Body is Not an Apology, she references this video um, by, I believe a psychologist, I can't remember their name, um, called Poodle Science. Um, It's a really amazing video and it, or it's like an animated video to try and explain this. Um, the idea that in this video, you know, there are so many different kinds of dogs. They're so using the idea of dogs. And when we talk about when we the people we have been studying and the people who are doing the research and caring, you know, caring for most people are poodles. And they keep trying to turn a mastiff into a poodle. Mm-hmm. And the mastiff can't become a poodle. The mastiff will never become a poodle. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the mastiff just feels bad again and again that like they can't become a poodle. And yet the poodles keep telling them that like the only way they will achieve what they need to is by becoming a poodle. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the thing that I want, like the brain shift that you could have. You know, I remember having a conversation at the very beginning of my practice 
with a person who is very dear to me and has provided me with a lot of generous education on all sorts of subjects, like around the communities that they are a part of. And they were dealing with something that was a hormonal picture. They're in a bigger body. And I said, you know, I referenced how the, you know, the research does tell us that like, there's a relationship between like how much fat you are carrying in your body and estrogen dominance, blah, blah, blah. And like, um, it was their like gentle kind of like listening and, um, response, you know, they've heard that before the response that they had, as I was saying it, I was like, I don't want to say this to you. I know that like, you know, that, and this is not a helpful conversation for you that, but I feel like I have to say it because the research says it's true. And it's just like, well, what if you, what if you just shift the way you're thinking to think that a person in this body has a different relationship with estrogen than a person in this body. And so like, you maybe have to accommodate for their symptoms in a different way. You're dealing with different, each body is a constraint within a closed system within which you're working to bring about the, what feels like health and well-being optimized for them and turn, like trying to turn them into a poodle so that you can use the same tools you use for the poodle to deal with the, you know, the symptoms isn't possible and it's going to make them, is going to cause harm for them in the long, in the long run. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, there's also this idea of like our body is a response to a bunch of different things, like, you know, perhaps genetics, but I'm even thinking about just like environmental, um, you know, uh, shifts, right? And that's like, you know, so a poodle and a mastiff have, have differentiated because of certain sort of like evolutionary pressures, environmental pressures. I mean, it's, it's, it's been an, um, an artificial means of selection to turn like, you know, to turn a dog into a mastiff versus a poodle. But, you know, some people, like, health may mean to be in a bigger body because that's the way the body has responded to a variety of different factors that we're unaware of. And to yeah. just simply, like, force the body to be a different size in the name of, quote-unquote, health make, d- makes very little sense from that perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I mean, I've definitely had weight loss as a recommendation in my own um, health journey, which is um, kind of absurd because I'm still in, a, like, a, um, quote-unquote, normal BMI but they, but it has been a recommendation. And, um, you know, when my body was, was smaller, uh, my, my hormone, like I stopped getting a period. So my body didn't want to be whatever 20% body fat or whatever it is, that is the, the standard, you know, the optimal, mm-hmm. um, that, that is perpetuated in the medical system. And so it sometimes, yeah, it makes very little sense. And if we're working with PMS, like, well, are there other reasons beyond body fat that someone could have PMS, you know, and, oh, yeah. and even beyond estrogen, right? Yes. Yeah. Let's talk, you know, like I've done a little reading, like in, um, you know, looking into what's being written in the kind of medical ethics side of things around subjectivity in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Like, can we, can we imagine maybe that truly each per- person's health is a collection of their subjective experiences, some of which have, you know, clear impact maybe on like the um, like health measures we can take through blood work or imaging and some which we cannot quantify or see, you know, a person's life experience contributes to their subjective experience of health. What is health? It's like well-being, you know, like there are, it's not a person, you know, yeah, there's just so many factors to take into consideration and you have to give your patients an opportunity to to do their best to start to to 
to begin the long-term path of defining for themselves, like, what does health mean for them? How does it, like, where can they, can we uncover all the little bits that allow them to feel like they are feeling their best for where they're at right now, given their experience? And yeah, there it's, it's complex. It's very complex, but I feel like there's such an opportunity to like deepen your relationships and, and find paths to really feeling to find a healing for, for people that you're working with by taking that perspective, you know, like for, you know, I, I'm, I'm inclined to say something about like genetic medicine and epigenetics and stuff right now. But to be honest, it's not something I've thought very much about, but I think like, we're really, you know, we want that to be the answer. We want to be like, Oh, go do it. You know, some, one of these nutrigenomics, whatever, I don't know, one of these tests and it'll tell us everything that you need, but it's just not true. You know, like even that, even that can't capture all of the things that contribute to your overall sense of like you at your best, where you feel your best for right now. And there's so much of our experience is qualitative and there needs to be space for that in a, in healing and in a patient interaction. Mm. So Mm. interesting. Yeah. I really, I'm interested in that idea of, of health as subjectivity, like it's subjective, you know, and because I think we might just hold this in our philosophy, this, sub, this, this implicit um, idea of health being a final state that we're yeah. in, that we're trying to achieve and makes, that makes zero sense. <laughs> you know? Yeah. There's, um, you know, and, and, it, and I think, yeah, what you're proposing or what you're talking about is, yeah, like deepening this relationship with a patient to really understand what is health for them. Like, where are we, headed like and and you know and is the direction that I assume we're going in um, because of my implicit values or biases is that the same direction that you want to go in you know yeah Um, yeah I mean like what a good transition to take us to what is occupying the world right now with anti-racism anti-black racism in particular and say like how important it is for frontline workers who work directly with people including naturopathic doctors who who definitely do not get access to the general population because of the way that we are paid in Ontario, I can speak for. Um, but, you know, to, to examine your own biases, mm. to examine how that view and how you're speaking to them and to really be prepared to, um, yeah, do some, do some hard work because you are that, you know, these, these things, if you are, if you are white, you are learning from privilege that is also impacting the way you work with people and it may not be something that you have you have uh, did, like found awareness of yet um it's so important for everybody but is especially important if you are showing up as a leader or an authority figure in relationships one-on-one with people and and really you know making sure that you're meeting a person where they're at understanding that you perhaps have no idea what their experience is like because it you have not had the same experience and to yeah there is there's a lot that needs to be done for people who work directly one-on-one with folks and for for sure for naturopathic doctors in particular because our our profession is still new and it does not it is not really you know flushed out with these kind of like basic you know, anti-oppression approaches that something like social work is where that's, you know, found, like most, in most approaches foundationally a part of how folks interact with people in that kind of work. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very like what, what have you been finding in terms of, because I know that this is like, you know, the recent events and um, 
the BLM movement has been highlighting, like we've started to look inwards as a profession to understand like where have we been lacking? Well, understanding the lack of education we've had around um, anti-racism work and anti-oppressive mm-hmm. work in our education. And mm-hmm. you were even saying before we started recording, but even how we like, you know, understand risk factors, you know, related mm-hmm. to race and ethnicity. Yeah. And yes. how the way that that has been studied is is ec- extremely problematic because it's not taking into account social determinants of health and all yes. these other factors. Um, but what what kind of things have you been yes. learning? Yeah. And, yeah, I think. I mean, like just to speak to that for a moment, like it's very obvious when you are in an environment, um, learning about like the so-called objective facts of yeah, risk factors and that kind of thing. And then maybe in a different class discussing social determinants of health and not tying those two things together to say, okay, like when we're talking about like a a population that shares like a, you know, this social category of race or perhaps an ethnic background um, and saying that they all have this particular risk factor. Well, okay. Can we talk about why that is the case and what's the bigger work to do here? If like we're finding that like, you know, rates of diabetes and then kidney disease, et cetera, are higher in, you know, populations with African heritage, black folks. Like if you are, you know, it's not, it is, um, yeah, it's harmful. It's very harmful. And it's not, it's, it's keeping us stuck in old ways of, um, old, old ways of practicing medicine that are deeply rooted in white supremacy. And, um, yeah, I don't even know actually how to speak to it, speak to some of your question. You know, I'm not, I'm not involved in, I'm actually, I'm not that involved in our profession. I have been an activist for a long time. I'm really involved in, um, you know, groups in my local community that are really trying to actively work to, to get better at the anti-racism work that we've already been doing. Um, I know that a lot needs to be done in naturopathic medicine and, and I, but I don't, I don't, I'm not that involved with the profession itself at this point. I know like um, a couple of years ago, because I, because of the clinic that I run in Hamilton, where we have tried to how to increase to use accessibility as a jumping off point for understanding how we can interact with different populations that are have not that don't get a chance to interact with naturopathic medicine or just choose not to, inter- to interact with naturopathic medicine and complementary health care and to really like, like use use our brains to think about why that might be the case started out with like talking about about financial accessibility and then it's like well, who's working here who's showing up who is not showing up and like, let's go talk to them. But why are they not showing up? Do they, they don't feel welcome? Yeah. Um, and it was a, it's been a journey of like understanding that accessibility goes so far beyond financial accessibility, physical accessibility. Um, and I got to speak on a panel at CCNM a couple of years ago with a few other wonderful practitioners. And I think that, you know, CCNM is the school in Toronto for naturopathic medicine that there are some good things that are happening on the ground there to try and like work on the massive problem of, um, yeah, diversity and, uh, white supremacy, white in the wellness world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It definitely, I mean, definitely it's a, it's a prominently white profession. Um, yeah. you know, and it's, I mean, I personally don't, 
know how to approach these conversations or, um, or, you know, maybe, yeah, what, what my place is as a white practitioner in terms of Mm -hmm. like opening up that, that dialogue or even understanding, or, um, Mm -hmm. like, I don't know what you've found in terms of listening to the black community and, and, Mm -hmm. and as we started to expand the conversation around healthcare and health practitioners and the alternative healthcare space, Mm -hmm. um, in terms of like the ways that we can listen or, um, or, or make our practices more accessible. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. I don't, know. <laughs> I don't know if my question makes sense. Not, I do this right now besides like needing to, we need to elevate the, the black voices and indigenous voices and folks of color in our profession right now to allow them to occupy space for leadership. It's important that we step aside and allow other people to, you know, to, to provide direction if they're, if that's a role they want to step into, we need to make space Mm. for that. Um, because I experience, I am, I am learning and I need to, you know, my role is to sit down and listen and create space for, to elevate voices and, and to speak to other people like me, other white folks who maybe don't realize that like standing at the front and yelling about this right now in general while important it's well it's important to have conversations and educate those around you who you may who might you know this may be new for it's especially important that we create space for our for for black leaders for indigenous leaders for people of color to to you know tell us what they need um when yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially, I mean, I was having a conversation with uh, Fernando in a previous episode about Mm -hmm. insights into communities that we want to work with or find ourselves working with and how, you know, as an outsider of a a particular community, there can be so many things that go wrong, which is not understanding particular community needs or um, Mm -hmm. where they're coming from, um, you know, superimposing our values and our objectives and mm-hmm. our needs on onto that community mm-hmm. like there was just yeah. a really there's millions of examples but the one that we use in that episode was that um a uh, organization that was providing into like mosquito nets to prevent malaria in a population and the community was using those nets to fish and they mm-hmm. were like well how do we convince them to use these nets for, for you know to prevent malaria as mosquito nets and it was like well that's not what the community needs clearly <laughs> you know yeah. I mean, a really like like a non healthcare example that is really useful to to point to right now is like there are people who have a lot of there are white people right now who are feeling the energy of what's happening and they are they care and they feel really strongly about doing something, which is important. And so they are they are trying to organize events and show up and say, "I'm here because Black Lives Matter" and whatever without without working with leadership in, you know, from the community of black activists or BIPOC activists in their, in their community. Um, and so without taking the steps that ensure the safety of everybody who will be attending without understanding the nuances and the relationship between, for example, the police and black folks in that community. And so like, it isn't, it isn't safe it's not just inappropriate. It's not safe for people who are not a part of the community to stand up and say, this is what we need right now. We need to, you know, you need to step aside. You need to invite people to come and say, you need to say, we don't know. We are making mistakes. And if this is a role that, 
you know, is one that you want, then we, we need to move aside for, yeah, yeah, we can't come, we're not going to parachute in and fix any of, any of this if we are also just a part of the community of white people who have been making mistakes and who are totally bathed in their experience of white privilege without, you know, being able to, yeah, it's, I'm, (laughs) yeah, it's, it's really complex and it will be a constant learning process and it'll be really wonderful to see where things go. We just must persist. We must stay consistent. We must take care of ourselves so that we don't fall off of this because it will be painful. It will be full of shame for white people. It'll be full of shame because we are complicit in something that perhaps some of us have not been aware of until now. And it is, and it's really, is really tough and necessary work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like yeah. it sounds like it, you know, uh, that just perpetuates more of the same, right? Where it's like you're just, um, again, just pushing like a white agenda and without necessarily doing like the deep inner work mm-hmm. of, of, um, evaluating mm-hmm. one's, one's own motivations and then also paying attention to the community and letting the community lead. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, from a healthcare perspective, yeah, as you're yeah. mentioning, like deferring to um, healthcare providers who are working closely with those populations or belong to those communities. Um, like, you know, what are you finding? What are the main, what are the main mistakes that we're making? Um, and asking those questions. It's hard to even know what questions to ask though, right? When you're, when you're yeah. outside of the community. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I know you were talking about certain tools that you um, implement that you use or that you found have been helpful, um, you know, in terms of supporting people and can you maybe speak a little bit about that. I don't actually know what you're, what you mean. Oh, <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, uh, <laughs> I think you mentioned um, like, you know, um, some of the tools in terms of like what people have found helpful in their, in their own healing or some tools that um, have been useful in working with, with patients in general um, to support like an anti-oppressive sort of framework or, Mm. or, you know, Mm. I mean, yeah, like one, one, yeah. So I mean, like there's kind of two, I don't really, things are evolving for me as they are for everybody right now. Um, you know, being as we're in the midst of the pandemic too. Um, and there's kind of two ways I'm thinking about the work that I've been doing, you know, one-on-one I pledge to continue to try to meet people hundred percent where they're at and to use my role to help them elucidate where they're at and where they want to be. Sorry, microphone's dying. (laughs) Um, and, um, as a, as a leader, in this, in this, you know, for the people that I work with, I really feel strongly about providing the tools for white folks in particular to, to, to maintain the momentum that they have right now to, you know, provide space for people to share what is hard for them about like engaging with this work for the first time, for the second time, for the hundredth time, to find that it moves slowly most of the time and that even like given that you must take care of yourself in the midst, you must, you know, finding space for, to take care of yourself, creating consistent 
ways of contributing to the anti-oppressive work that you know needs to happen allows for you to be consistent in other places in your life with taking care of yourself so that you can maintain the momentum. So you can keep showing up without feeling totally desperate and depressed because change is often slow. We're in this like incredible energetic moment where big things are happening, but probably what will happen on the, the other side of some of this will be that things slow down again and we still can't give up. And so I really want to stand up in my role as a leader to say like, I'm, I can help, you know, we can find ways of like keeping you, keeping you in a state that allows you to continue to show up to. And that for me is like the thing that I want to do most for folks is to, to support them so that they can show up in the way that is meaningful for the world, for dismantling oppression, for the liberation of black people, for the, for decolonization of, you know, where we live uh, on Turtle Island entirely um, and to just like support folks in that journey so that we can, we can move to a place where we need to be. Um, the tools, the tools are really about, you know, so much of what we need in that process involves body awareness, involves deeply embodying your experience by recognizing how you feel when you have certain experiences, when you, um, you know, to integrate practices like intuitive eating along with like embodied movement and paying attention to how you feel and, and allowing yourself to be, you know, incorporating that with practices of mindfulness and yeah, it's all, it's big, it's big stuff. I don't know. You know, you know about this stuff. (laughs) I love it. I love how it it comes back to um, a lot of this is coming into body awareness um, as a way almost to, I don't know if the word is dismantle shame, but, like, I mean, I, I can imagine though that that's like, if, if someone's living with a lot of shame, um, to start to look into the body where a lot of shame lives could be really hard. A hundred percent. And that's, you know, like one, one of the reasons I love so deeply and am indebted to and appreciate greatly the work of Sonny Renee Taylor is that she very much is, you know, we we need to accept the differences in ourselves to better accept the differences in the world like when we deal with our own personal shame it allows us to see how we inflict shame on others because of their own differences like the key to liberation and decolonization and and dismantling oppression is to also look to the ways that we you know that i internalize my white privilege that i internalize like you know states of oppression and how that leads to my own shame around like my body the way i behave my thoughts my feelings and to yeah deepening body awareness is like um the the on it's not again just like you said before it's not a state we'll achieve it's an ongoing practice but the better we get at it just like meditation the more you practice the more readily in a situation where you require mindfulness you can access it and i think that like the work personally and the work you know besides the action that you're taking right now probably reading i hope reading books talk having hard conversations with your families around um, anti-black racism donating your money places yes 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 but also turn turn inwards to yourself and examine like be with your own feelings in this acknowledge how you feel acknowledge the feelings of guilt shame sadness anger energy that you might have and 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 give attention to it yeah it's yeah it's exciting it's wonderful it's so great that we're in in this moment and it's also terribly difficult and heartbreaking and challenging and Mm. um and so we we must find ways of 
mm. of remembering and doing our best and maintaining our ability to show up, show up, show up, show up and do it again, again, again. Mm. Yeah. And something, yeah, the, the, the parallels of like paying attention to, because, you know, so, I mean, what, what we've been talking about can generate shame in healthcare is this idea of like external um, markers of health, right. Or like quote unquote health versus mm-hmm. looking inward and really uh, developing a relationship with one's body, which we're often discouraged um, of doing because you're putting in like the example of put, being put in a diet, you're told to kind of cut off your body yeah. and, and defer to this. You're ex- hungry. Yeah. Ignore it. Totally. <laughs> you desire like a delicious, rich meal. You desire something like sweet and easy to digest super carby because you've just expended all this energy or just because you want it. You're discouraged. Yeah. From paying attention to those signals for sure. I mean, like I can't believe how revolutionary it is to suggest to patients, you know, a patient comes in who's really struggling with lots of thoughts around eating, who has patterns of disordered eating, who eats when they have feelings and assumes that that is bad to say, it's not bad. That's like a legitimate self-soothing strategy that you have. Wow. You're so, it's so, you know, that's lucky. You know that that works when you feel bad. You can go eat a bunch of ice cream and it helps you feel better in that moment versus something that truly would be harmful to yourself in that moment. And so like making the connection between like just pausing, you know, just to say when you have that desire of like something in the evening goes on and you're just like, wow, I just need to stand over the sink and eat like a whole thing of chocolate ice cream. Like, awesome. But also just pause for a second and notice how you feel in your body. Name the emotion you're having right now. Like, oh my God, I'm exhausted. And the feeling I have is whatever, whatever the feeling is. And then, and then thinking again, like, is the ice cream over the the sink, the thing I need? Yes, it is. Okay. Awesome. Go have the ice cream. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you realize like, oh, after checking in with my body, I can tell that the thing I need is to go to bed right now because I'm exhausted. I have really had a hard day and and so you can choose that, you know, and it's, yeah, the connect, the deepening, the connection with the body, the work of, you know, intuitive eating counselors who are really revolutionary, uh, revolutionizing the um, way that I think that we can talk about interacting with um, how you eat and the role food plays in your life is really magic. It is powerful and it can lead to, I think, so much more awareness and other aspects of our life too. And yeah, play a huge role in dismantling that everyday shame that we live with. You have a Facebook group called Shameless. Yes. Learn more. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Facebook group called Shameless. We do interviews in there. It's a, it started during the pandemic as a way to share um, resources to support people through the like challenges that they're encountering during this time that are anti-shame, that do not promote shame. So that, you know, it's a safe place to land to, to feel comfortable with what we're all dealing with right now. Um, I'm also on Instagram. You can find me there talking about all the same stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And anything you want to leave off with, like any, any last thoughts or last words to, um, to wrap up this conversation. This is great. Um, Yeah. Yeah. If you're feeling, yeah, I think just like uh, repeating a lot of what I've already said around, like if you to speak to this moment right now, you know, post the murder of George Floyd, post the, um, you know, the dissolution of the Minneapolis police department, Mm -hmm. like we can, and we must, if you are a white person listening to this, as I am a white person, we can, and we must maintain this energy. And so in the process of that, 
make space to take care of yourself, make space to, to check, to develop that body awareness that will allow you to see when you need to rest, when you need to fuel, when you need to find joy to play so that you can continue to show up and do the hard work without, um, the hard work we need to do without falling apart. Amazing. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much. Thanks, Emily. Yeah, it was wonderful chatting with you. Have a great rest of your day. You too.